gets all the files of the whole park. It tells her everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. If you're at all glued in to the global news cycle, you'll know the U.S. just assassinated shadowy Iranian general Qasem Soleimani. And since that night, experts have been racing around wondering what the blowback from Tehran will be. Naturally, in the age of cyber, people are pretty hysterical about the threat of Iranian hackers, who, if you were to believe some of the newscasts, are literally hiding in your modem. Fact is, there are real and some overblown threats from Iranian hackers. To break this down with me, we've got Motherboard reporter Joseph Cox. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. Okay, so Joseph, you know, Qasem Soleimani, this assassination, not even the cyber can avoid this because this is a, obviously it's the biggest world news. But since it happened, lots of people wondering, what is the Iranian regime going to do? And of course, hackers came into it. Yeah, I mean, we haven't really seen much from the Iranian government itself, at least publicly when it comes to hacking. But of course, people are worried about the potential threat and risk of it. Uh, But some people are going a little bit over the top. So there was some website defacements by uh, self-described Iranian hackers. And then some Texas officials said that they're facing something like 10,000 attempted cyber attacks um, constantly on their web systems. Uh, But of course, it turned out that that was not an actual cyber attack. It was more something called port scanning which is when you just run a very basic tool and you'll see what ports are open on the web server. So, oh, it's doing HTTP or it's running this software. It's what someone would do as a recon stage before the attack. But what people seem to overlook is that this is the background noise of the internet. This (laughs) happens constantly every day. I mean, if you connect to the internet... You're getting 10,000 port scans on you constantly all the time anyway. This is just, this is, you know, the internet uh, as normal. But they started looking, these, um, this Texas government department, said, oh, all of this activity is coming from Iran. But then they also admitted they don't know whether that's Iranian government or just random people using IPs from Iran or whatever. So there's a lot of hype about it, uh, a lot of drama. But we haven't seen really anything substantial except website um, defacements yet. And that's kind of as expected. This is, you know, patriotic um, Iranian hackers just doing their low-level bullshit, really. I mean, that's kind of the thing, right? Like, I I thought to myself as soon as this was happening, I'm like, oh my God. Mm -hmm. There's going to be some website defacements and MSNBC or CNN or whatever is going to be like breaking news a group claiming to be Iranian hackers taking responsibility for the hack of a federal library website over the weekend. Contessa Brewer has more on the rising cyber attack risks. The Texas library system was right. attacked by Iranian. Right. And it's like, what? And I mean, we, fortunately, we haven't had it that bad with like CNN <laughs> as far as I know. But there has to be the, like at least local Texas and state media really picking up this story. And I mean... That's what the these patriotic hackers want. They want to put a big scary message on a web page and people pick it up. And we also covered it as well, to be fair, but we immediately, you know, in the second paragraph said this is low skilled stuff. It's more than a hacking story. It's more of, you know, a propaganda story mm-hmm. than anything. Absolutely. I mean, from a technical point of view, it's very boring. There's not going to be much stuff going on. Um, but there is still there's still something to talk about there, the messaging and just the fact that people are doing this at all, yeah. Well, kind of just, it, to me, it's very reminiscent of, of past 
moments in cyber that we've seen, right? Like whether it's anonymous or the Syrian electronic army where they take over some sort of website, deface some, it for a while. Some of the Turkish hacking groups as well. Would Turkish do this, hacking yeah. groups, exactly. And it's yeah. just sort of, I mean, these, the thing too is that should we even qualify this as a cyber attack per se? No, I mean, nowadays when we live in a world of stuff like NotPetya, um, that malware that, you know, severely shut down systems, where we have malware that is designed to cause physical harm, um, even though it hasn't been successful yet. I mean, those are real cyber attacks. So we probably shouldn't cheapen the term by using it for port scanning or some crappy defacement on a Texas government website by some random hackers. We should save that term for the really substantial stuff because we are we are in the age where the really substantial stuff could actually happen. So we we should wait for we should keep it for that really. Well, I totally agree. And the other thing too is this, this stuff sort of smacks of script kitties, right? It's just almost like easy point and shoot type malware you can get that will allow you to just send a phishing email, get something back, get access quickly, destroy something, deface it, and yeah, then, and uh, then you're out. Yeah, you know what uh, I mean? Like, I mean, some of these websites are just running unpatched, outdated software, and that's the sort of opportunist opportunistic attack that as you say, a script kiddies, um, just going to be using. I mean, I looked around one of the defacements and some, at least one of the handles mentioned there was of a guy who did another defacement supporting this infamous Iranian hacking forum that was actually run by, you know, security contractors linked to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. That doesn't mean this is the Iranian government going and doing all these crappy defacements, though. You know, how Iranian hackers work is that they will have these patriotic sort of communities or cells who will just go do it anyway and then maybe when the government needs them they can help out with that as well so from the out it just looks like this is people doing it to voice their own support rather than anything from the government yet and i mean like who are these people that are actually doing these these hacks i mean do you do you think they're at all connected because i mean my perspective is they're probably not I mean, it just looks like they decided to go deface these websites as they could and then shout out a few of their friends, a few of their communities, and then move on with them. I mean, they're reaching out to me via email, trying to chat more. So clearly they want to they want to get attention. Mm-hmm. You know, they not only do they want to attribute it to Iran or at least claim, hey, we're doing this for Iran, they want to talk more about it, um, which again frames it more as a propaganda story than the hacking one. Yeah, you know, th- absolutely. Th- that's what the story is, really. Now, the other thing, too, that that uh, we can't avoid is that Iran can hack things, and they are not, they're not bad. I mean, from a lot of experts I've, I've spoken to in the past, it's, Iran is obviously not China or Russia or Israel or the US or even any of the Five, five Eyes countries, but they're not bad. Right, yeah, we can't completely write them off, especially they've been increasing their capability over the past few years, and the experts you spoke to brought this up, and then there was the 2012 wiping attack against the Saudi um, state oil company. I mean, they can do serious damage, so there is legitimate concern about what Iran may do uh, to the US in response over these tensions, but we haven't seen it yet, and we shouldn't, you know go crazy about some port scannings on some government websites. That being said, Yahoo News did report that there was some sort of wiping attack um, in Saudi Arabia just at the end of December before the the Soleimani drone strike. Um, It didn't conclusively attribute it to Iran, but they're the most likely culprit at the moment. So there are bubblings that the Iranian government could or may be doing things, but it's not 
bombastic in your face, hey, look at us, show a force sort of thing. Um, but the threat's there, but we should take it measured. I, I completely agree with you. I mean, the Department of Homeland Security put out a, a, a statement on this saying that, you know, companies should be aware of this. There's an increased risk of attacks from the Iranian regime. And it's true. I mean, the other thing, too, is that I- Iran has clearly shown a broader interest in things like ICS or in industrial control systems, so stuff that does have to do with critical infrastructure. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know that after, this is the classic thing, after Stuxnet, Iran freaked out, they put money into hackers, they started thinking about critical infrastructure hacking as well. And it's true. I mean, recently we saw when Trump pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal, suddenly there was this flurry of attacks uh, against nuclear workers, against diplomats. Well, after President Trump reimposed economic sanctions on Iran last month, Iranian state-backed hackers tried to break into the emails of U.S. officials tasked with enforcing them. That's according to data given to the Associated Press by a London-based cybersecurity group. According to the data, a group nicknamed Charming Kitten attempted to hack the private emails of more than a dozen U.S. Treasury officials. People wanting to know from Iran, Iranian hackers, wanting to know what was going on with uh, industrial control systems in the States, but also around that deal. So they have they have real capabilities. Mm-hmm. They're not nothing. And then two that I think is important to state is that they, they attacked banks before in the U.S. Cyber warfare, the most extensive attack on American banks ever, launched from the Middle East, happening right now. Citigroup, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, U.S. Bancorp, and today PNC. Did actually, you know, disrupt transactions, cost, cost a lot of money. The other one they did was, I mean, this one I think has been overblown in the past, but they did hack a small dam in New York State. Iranian hackers infiltrated computer software that controls the floodgates of this Rye, New York dam, just 20 miles outside of New York City. A former U.S. official familiar with the investigation revealed the classified details from 2013, first reported by the Wall Street Journal. So if there was ever one that happened that was a critical infrastructure attack per se, Mm -hmm. it was that. Yeah, and they didn't really get anything tangible out of it. But as you say, it showed that, hey, Iran is interested in targeting these things and they can. Um, and their skills are evolving. Right, exactly. I mean, Ars Technica reported uh, just a couple of days ago that Iran tried to, in a sort of combination of traditional human spycraft and then more of the hacking stuff, they tried to recruit a US security expert on industrial control systems uh, to be like, hey, we'll give you $100,000 if you can come teach us about these security issues around this technology. So clearly they are very interested in it to the point where they will throw money at it um, Mm -hmm. to try to improve their capability. Um, So they are exceptionally interested in this area, even if, as you say, I mean, they're not Russia or China at this point. And in 2018, uh, the DOJ indicted, I think it was something like 11 hackers Mm. from Iran, and Mm -hmm. they were accused of going after academic institutions Mm -hmm. across, you know, allied countries to the United States, including Canada, Britain, etc., they were looking for IP. They were looking for things to support the country, right? Mm-hmm. And they were and it kind of like the Chinese almost, and now the Iranians do exactly, yeah. exactly. And they were doing it under the auspices of this thing called the Mabnet Institute, which was this private institute. But it's pretty clear that it was some sort of uh, IRGC connected mm-hmm. company. And we've also seen Russia do similar things like that, mm-hmm. right? When they want to mask GRU, they want to mask FSB. They create some sort of institute in Russia that then undertakes it privately. Yeah. So they've they've got some they got some moves.
Reporting now coming in from Reuters, they're reporting that a hacking group that appears to be linked with the Iranian government uh, attempted to break into President Donald Trump's re-election campaign, uh, but the reporting is that that effort did not succeed. Reuters citing sources familiar with the operation. And the other thing I think we should end on is, and again, I don't want to be a Russia boogeyman well, yeah, it's, scare tactic. You, you mentioned Russia hiding behind certain veils then, and that's exactly what, as you know, the... Russia's been doing with these Iranians, right? They have. There was some story uh, that happened in the fall that that connected Russian FSB or government hackers hijacking Iranian infrastructure to mask themselves or APTs more more like known APTs from Iran to attack things to make themselves look like Iranian hackers. So I think it, it brings up the other question: is that you know right now in this broader conflict period, Russia is a great ally of Iran. And Russia, as we know, does have moves in cyber and they can do a lot of very destructive things. And they are sitting inside of U.S. systems, like much like the U.S. is sitting in their systems. So, you know, it's very complicated. There's things to it. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think we shouldn't be freaking out just yet. Mm -hmm. I think we need to, just like everything else in the cyber, we need to kind of take a deep breath and just look at the evidence and see what happens yeah. and then react to that. Yeah, a group of random Iranian hackers pulling um, some audio file on the website of the, I think it was the South Alabama Veterans Society or something. <laughs> like, like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't. It, it, yeah. it's, it's okay. Chill out. Yeah, yeah. We're it's all like, good. Yeah, like how many how many visits did that site get before right. that? Right. <laughs> I mean, when I was covering it, I, w I left the music on because some of those websites were playing this audio. And it was 45 minutes later and I kind of, I didn't even realize I'd just been listening to this music the entire time. So maybe it's working. The music was slapping. Man. Yeah, I don't know, maybe it's working. I don't know. They, they got a fan. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, they'll keep doing this and it'll go up and down. It's fine. Exactly. Yeah. We will see you next. Exactly. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We're back for our first cipher of the year, but there's no Jason Kebler. No, it's it's just me. I'm sorry. <laughs> Emmanuel, introduce yourself. Uh, hey, I'm Emmanuel. I'm a Motherboard's managing editor. He's one of our dear leaders as well, except Jason Kebler, our other dear leader, has come down with a black death. R.I.P. <laughs> He's just a sick boy, isn't he? He'll, he'll live. I think. Yeah, probably. <laughs> he will. He will. Okay, so let's get to this. This one's an interesting one because I hadn't thought about this in a long time. <laughs> when I saw the headline, I was like, wait, I know about that, don't I? So something awful. Why don't you explain what it is and what, what the latest development is? So even if you don't know the name something awful, you kind of know 
the culture of something awful. It is a website that has become uh, foundational to internet culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was originally just a place where um, they posted like these short humorous articles about video games, um, uh, just about like funny things on the internet. A uh, very irreverent and silly website, and at some point it got a message board, and that is where a lot of the people who are associated with uh, Weird Twitter, if you remember that brand mm-hmm. of uh, Twitter humor, uh, that's where a lot of those people come from, uh, like the drill style. The drill, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of where it all comes from. Drill is still funny, by the way. Yeah, they're all they're all pretty funny. Um, we have a great story about this website and why it is so influential from uh, 2017, I think. And uh, as that story explains, there was always a dark side to something awful. Uh, 4chan, for example, like a lot of the people who started 4chan and where a lot of 4chan culture also comes from something awful, and specifically. There is this uh, section of the message board called uh, Fuck You and Die, which is kind of like the spiciest. uh, (laughs) It's a spicy one. Yeah, it's like the trolliest one as well. And the guy who founded the website, uh, Richard uh, Kianka, I believe is uh, how you pronounce his name. Lotax is his screen name. Uh, And, you know, he's moderating... uh, the website and volunteers are moderating the website and that section of the forum, the fuck you and die section has gotten so bad that he finally gave up and is shutting it down. And he specifically says it's because, uh, it's, he can't moderate all the Nazi posts that are going up there. And he's just like, fuck it. I'm like, no more. I don't want to deal with it. Good for him, man. Yeah. I think that's the move, you know, I think it's it's totally the move. I don't understand that more internet companies don't like when this, let's say Cloudflare, for example, they're like, no, no, the internet's free for all. You're like, well, no, not, it shouldn't be the Nazis. Yeah. It also reminds me, uh, for a while, Vice and Motherboard had a comment section on all of its stories. Yeah, it was bad. Yeah, it was bad. And it's like, you know, we didn't have the resources to properly moderate it. And we said, well, we can't really prevent bad stuff from happening in here, so we're closing it. And we offered other ways for people to contact us and, you know, uh, participate and criticize us if they want. You know, we don't want to shut down, uh, like, ways of communicating with the editorial staff. But if I can't prevent people from posting hate speech, I'm not going to give them the opportunity, which is what he's doing. And is. I would say notably the opposite of what a lot of the big platforms are doing where they're just like throwing their hands up and saying, well, you know, we're trying. We're some some ridiculous free speech argument. Yeah. Or, yeah. No, I agree with you. I mean, I, I remember when those those comment sections were up for Vice articles, it used to give me anxiety mm-hmm. and not just from the hate, but just like just like somebody just grilling you and like it just was awful. Yeah. And a lot of spam as well. A lot of spam. A lot of spam. But anyways, I, I, it, it is one of those stories where you kind of see where the purity of that early internet culture that did have like some faults to it, but it was fun and ridiculous, you know, like the lulls culture mm-hmm. kind of like devolved into Nazi shit, just yeah. like everything else on the internet, I think, apparently. I, I think uh, I said this on Twitter as well, which is like, it's a really fitting end. And I think it's because it shows that, because it's going back to 
like the origin of this culture and it's showing how there was always a bad element there and how that bad element totally consumed everything, which is what I feel is happening online. It's what's happening on Twitter. It's what happened on 4chan. It's what's happening at this... uh, This impasse, whatever we call this moment in history. Yeah. It's like yeah. <laughs> on the eve of World War Three, I think that's what we should call it probably. <laughs> okay, so the next one is uh, my favorite company of all time. I have stocks in it. Just joking. I don't. Um, I hate this company for a lot of reasons. Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, Facebook took a stand that a lot of people are saying didn't need to be taken. Yeah. So uh, the re- – okay. So Facebook released this statement on uh, its – press site where they make a lot of statements that are supposed to make the company look better. And essentially they appear to be taking a stand on deepfakes, which are these machine learning uh, created fake videos, uh, which I'm sure everybody knows. Um, A story that uh, Motherboard is proud to have broken uh, initially in 2017. And Basically, leading up to the election this year, Facebook is saying, hey, we're not allowing uh, deepfakes that are meant to mislead people intentionally to just be shared freely on the site. And that seems like a fine thing to do initially. But there are two issues here. Um, The issue that uh, Sam Cole, who is uh, the leading expert on uh, deepfakes globally. uh, Shout out to Sam Cole. Yeah. Um, So what she pointed out, which is what we always point out when we write about deepfakes, is that it's very um, seductive to think about the potential of deepfakes as a political manipulation tool, like someone will make a fake video of Donald Trump announcing something that he didn't say that would lead to some war. It's like... Yeah, Russia. Russia. Yeah, right, right. And it's like, (laughs) first of all, we don't need a fake video. It's like the real thing is fucked up enough. And then also, it's just like, this is not a thing that happens. We have not seen this happen, really. No, because if it happens, someone's like, well, that never happened because there would have needed to be X amount of people who saw it and nobody's going to be able to claim that. Right. There's just so many ways of 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 kind of picking that apart that it's not a thing. Yeah. And it's not – there is a study that Sam uh, references which looked at what – uh, deepfake videos are actually about and the vast majority of them as has always been the case are about uh, harassing women and creating fake pornography of women. There really just isn't a big problem with deepfake videos of Barack Obama or Donald Trump or Putin or anything. That's just not happening. And then the other issue with uh, this announcement is that while they're not allowing uh, people to share deepfakes, the carve out for political ads is still in if like that's still shit. Yeah. I was about to say, isn't there isn't there like policy on political ads completely ridiculous? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I would say it is. It's like because if if they if Facebook is coming out and uh, making a big deal out of taking a stand against deepfakes, it doesn't seem to carry as much weight if they're going to allow. Uh, the Trump campaign, for example, to create a 
deep fake video of Bernie Sanders saying that uh, he's a Stalinist or something. Yeah. You know, it's what what did we accomplish if we prevented the average person who doesn't make these kind of videos anyway from sharing them? It just doesn't seem to add up to much. I, I, I I'm constantly perplexed by this company. I don't get it. Yeah. And the decisions it makes. <laughs> yeah. Same. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody keeps calling it. I can't remember who it is on Twitter. Keeps calling it Mark Zuckerberg's storm project. And I think that's it sticks. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes. Okay. So on to our last one from the great Edward, who's been killing it on the Uber front. It's about how Uber fired some drivers who were essentially leading in the protests against it. Yeah. Which is, seems a little bit uh, anti-French in a lot of ways as well, because uh, the French like to protest. There's yeah, no so the, the, the protesting part is very French and it's great. Yeah, it's fantastic. Because uh, there were these uh, really powerful protests against uh, Uber and France. And now one of uh, the people who were leading that protest, uh, he um, is saying that Uber is firing him. Uh, because of his uh, protest activities. And Uber is saying that that is not the reason why he was fired. But then they say, let's see exactly, that it's about him. The reason that they fired him is because he's intimidating Uber staff, yep. degrading its offer, its offices, and insulting the company online, which to me gets to the problem with... A lot of these uh, cases where uh, companies fire people who are organizing and they claim that it's not because they're organizing. But what is organizing and criticizing your company and like trying to change it if it's not like insulting it online or intimidating? You know what I mean? It's like, how do you split the difference? Like, oh, it's bullshit. I, I actually read the the complaint. I, I had to. I did a little translation because I. Je suis pas français, c'est comme. Oh, I ouais. didn't know that. Exactement. This is for all the listeners out there. Now they know. <laughs> Real ones know. Yeah. <laughs> and I, it's, it's, it was so classically French in the way that it, uh, it attacked, it attacked the worker, but then said like, we reserve the right to go after you for like the value of what this, what this is. And it just, to me, was sort of, it, it smacked of them threatening in the hopes that he's just going to now fade away from the, from the actual movement because they have an infinite resources and he has none. And they could pursue this kind of faulty way of looking at it, but it doesn't matter because this person has none. So he's probably going to end up capitulating. Yeah. You think this will work? You think this I, is I don't know. I mean, I have no idea. I mean, I, I know that's the tactic. Like mm -hmm. that's what these companies do, right? They'll, they'll, because they know it, it's like when you get takedown requests or, or, mm -hmm. or things like slap, uh, slap, slap suits. Yeah. You know, these companies can, can tie it up in court and they know they're wrong, but it doesn't quite matter. Yeah, I think there's a point in the organizing process where this kind of uh, action from the company does work. But I think with Uber and Kickstarter is another example, right, where they were mm -hmm. organizing and some people who were, who were involved in organizing got fired. I think once it reaches a certain point, it doesn't work. I think this will backfire for Uber because it's like there's so much attention on this. Uh, the drivers... Uh, are not going to back down, I think. You know, there's too many people who drive for the company. It's their main source of income. 
it's like it's an existential fight for them, you know. So yeah, and I, I, I it's not, again another company that you don't understand some of the choices it's making because it doesn't seem like it's it's it, they act clearly in 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 favor of their investors and not for the sustainability of the company. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I mean, Edward put it really well in an article. He said, look, Uber is cheap right now, but this is just basically an investor subsidized uh, ride share yeah. that is bound to smolder up in flames because that investment will it will eventually go away. And it's it's true. Yeah. It's funny. I think out of all these stories, which involve like two uh, multi-billion dollar companies and one a uh, hobbyist website that is barely staying afloat from like one guy's basement. And yeah. it's like that guy makes the most sense. Like like he's <laughs> yeah. actually like it's true. the best run internet company. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. It's not the one that's that has like what's it called? Those weird consultancy from McKinsey yeah. coming in and firing people for them and whatever <laughs> yeah. else, you know? Like <laughs> yeah. it's the guy in the basement. Yeah. Well that seems like a good way to end this, mm-hmm. I think. On power to the guy in the basement. <laughs> See you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.